Lord, this morning we come and acknowledge readily, fully, that we need you desperately to open our eyes to your truth as we look at your word today. We need you to soften our hearts. We need you to convict us of sin where your word shines holy light into our hearts to reveal where there is sin that we need to confess and repent of. And Lord, we need your strength. Apart from you, Jesus, we can do nothing, nothing. And yet your word says that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So Lord, we pray today that as we acknowledge just very simply and sincerely with that song, how much we need you. We pray that you would meet the needs that we have today, causing us to be conformed to the likeness of our Savior Jesus Christ, to become more like him, and bringing glory and honor and praise to your name in the process. So God, work in each of us today as we look into your word and seek to understand what it reveals to us about you and how it calls us to live in a way that will please you. Pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a short passage from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossian church, Colossians 3, 12 through 14, which addresses Christian behavior, how to treat one another in a Christ-like way in our relationships. Very practical. Paul was not the founder of the church in Colossae, but it may have been founded by Epaphras, a convert from Paul's church in Ephesus. The church consisted of, of uh, both Jews and Gentiles, and Paul began his letter by teaching them a very high view of the supremacy of Jesus Christ in the beginning of this letter, partly to counter some false teachers in the church who suggested that the Colossians needed to go beyond the true gospel message to experience greater spiritual completeness. Basically, they were adding to the gospel which makes it a different gospel. Paul has strong words for those who preached a different gospel than the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is something we, we still see today. There are many churches and church leaders who claim that the plain gospel message about Christ's incarnation, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension to heaven are not enough. They have special insight from God which will lift you to a higher spiritual plane, ushering you into a deeper mystical experience you never thought possible. And then really, this can be very similar to Gnosticism, which was a, a heresy in the early church that taught that everything physical is evil and that the followers of this cult could achieve a higher truth or a knowledge apart from the Bible through some mystical higher dimension of, or plane of existence. I just want to tell you as we kind of think about this book we're looking at today, you absolutely do not need any source of teaching outside of the Bible to help you know God 
through his son Jesus Christ. You do not. That is a lie. And I encourage you to immediately reject any teacher or organization that tells you that they have something extra to offer you beyond God's revelation in Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, very familiar passage, says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, reproof or rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And also beware of, of, of uh, I'm just going to be blunt about this, be aware of some forms of what's called spiritual formation. That means different things in different Christian circles. So I want to define this a little bit. Sometimes this phrase means the practice of spiritual disciplines, which the Bible prescribes for us, the Bible instructs us to pursue, like prayer, accountability, discipleship, meditating on Scripture. These are great things. However, sometimes in our day, it refers to borrowing practices from Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism or from medieval Catholic monks, which go beyond the ways that we are instructed by Scripture to know, worship, and obey God. Colossians 2, 9 and 10 says that Jesus Christ is fully God. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ, verse 9 says. And this is the book we're looking at today. Colossians 2.10 says that you, we, are complete in Christ, who's the head of all principality and power, complete in Him, having all we need. Romans 8.9 tells us that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16 that Christians have the mind of Christ through the Holy Spirit living in us. So does it sound from those verses like we as Christians lack what we need for life and godliness, to know God or to follow Him? Does it sound like we lack that? It doesn't sound like that to me. In fact, Peter says in, in 2 Peter 1.3 that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So just a little encouragement as we think about Paul's uh, letter to the Colossians and, and what he was trying to help them understand. Beware of teachers or groups that tell you the Bible's not enough or that the gospel is too simple and they have more to tell you that's going to take you beyond where God has told you to go in Scripture. Don't believe it. So today we're looking at Colossians 3, 12 through 14. It's a beautiful passage where Paul having established that Jesus Christ is God's supreme revelation of himself. The head, as I said in two verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus is the head of all principality and power. And then Paul tells us specifically what imitating Jesus in our relationships with each other looks like. Here's the passage, so if you would read along with me, let's look at Colossians 3, 12 through 14, as I read it now. Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, 
so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. A beautiful passage we're looking at. Sometimes a, a negative example can help make a point um, better than, than just stating the point itself. I came across a fascinating true story that I think will serve that purpose in, in part of this passage we're looking at today. So there were these two brothers, Adolf and Rudolf Dossler, born in Bavaria, Germany, in the late 1800s in a small town called and I hope I don't butcher this, I checked this with Michael, <laughs> Herzogenaurach. Hopefully it's at least sort of close. Herzogenaurach, located by the Aurach River. So these brothers started a shoe factory business in their parents' basement, which grew and became successful through the 1930s and 40s. However, something happened in 1948, leading to a split of the company and the brother and the brothers, due to a, a terrible feud between them. The younger brother, Rudolf, left the village, and he started a company called Puma. Shoe company called Puma. On the other side of the Aurok River. Adolf remained on his side of the river and started a shoe company called, wait for it, Adidas. The family feud resulted in heated competition between the brothers until their deaths, decades later. The crazy thing is, the secret of the cause of their feud died with them. Family, friends, employees have been interviewed and have speculated for decades what the cause might be, but no one seems to know for certain what led to such an acrimonious rift between these brothers something they were never willing to forgive each other for. We'll, we'll go back to this story in just a little bit. Fascinating story. All right, now looking at our text, at the start of Colossians chapter 3, so just before our passage, Apostle Paul tells Christians to adopt a heavenly perspective on all of life. So maybe a familiar passage where he says, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. So we're to adopt this heavenly perspective on all of life based on our new identity as those who were dead in our trespasses but whom God has made alive together with Christ. That's part of that early chapter 3 as well. He's made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven all our sins. Praise God for that Amazing truth and perspective. Paul reminds us that Christ is risen and reigning with God. We've been raised with him. Our old self has died. We were, and as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, we were crucified with Christ. No longer we who live, but Christ lives in us. And Christ will appear again to bring us into glory with himself. So because of this reality, who Christ is, and who we are now in Christ, these new creations in Christ. Because of this reality, we are to set our minds on things that are above, not on earth. Then in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 3, Paul instructs us to put to death a number of things. He says, put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. And then he says in verse 9, put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, 
and lying. He identifies these as practices of our old self, which can directly be translated, actually practices can be translated, wicked doings. This is the wicked doings of our old self. Sadly, the Dossler brothers seem to be stuck in a number of sinful practices that the Apostle Paul instructs believers to put off, all of which lead to great division or disunity. On the other hand, the practices or virtues that Paul calls us in our passage today to put on, literally to clothe ourselves with, those practices lead to unity, living together harmoniously in the body of Christ. Before identifying the specific virtues we are called to practice, Paul first reminds us of, and this is point one, point one is Paul reminds us of our identity as believers. This is really important. Who are we as believers before Paul tells us what we should be doing? What is our identity as believers? Well, Paul says three things. He tells us we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. All three of these are standard ways of describing actually both Israel, who God chose in the Old Testament, and the church as God's chosen people that we we hear about and read about in the New Testament, His chosen ones who are holy and beloved. So chosen one refers to God's divine election of His people. Ephesians 1.4 beginning of this chapter, uh, or excuse me, of another book of Paul's, Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. The Greek word for chosen, eklektos, was used for something specially chosen, specifically specially chosen, and it implies the additional idea of kindness and favor and love. So God's election of believers is part of His perfect predetermined plan of salvation, and it's not based on anything we've done, any merit of those who are chosen. It's completely based on His grace and love. We, just as a side note, we struggle to understand how election works, because God's ways are so much higher than our ways, and that's Isaiah 55, 9 says that. God's ways are much higher than our ways. We can't understand all of His ways. But God's sovereign, electing grace should only cause us to praise Him and thank Him for all eternity. His intention in choosing us is motivated by His love. Going back to Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, again, Paul beautifully states, in love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. So just reading and understanding this idea that God chose us in love out of kindness and favor should cause us to praise Him, cause us to thank Him and praise Him. Well, in addition to being chosen, Paul calls the Colossian believers holy. And this just simply means that we are set apart for God's purposes and for His glory. God has chosen Christians out of the mass of humanity to know and serve Him. We're different and separate from the world by the fact that we're chosen by God. And when we fail to act differently, we undermine the true purpose of His calling of us. And then finally in this opening section, Paul calls Christians, Paul says Christians are beloved. This means we are 
objects of his special love. Objects of God's special love. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, beautifully describe God's electing love. The passage says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 2 Timothy 1.9 also expresses the greatness of God's love shown to us in Christ. It says that it is Christ who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This is amazing. So knowing that our identity as believers is found in being those who are chosen, made holy, and beloved by God, what does Paul tell us to do? What does he say we are to do now? Well, this is point two. Essentially, he says we are to imitate Christ's character. Real simply, point two, imitate Christ's character. Paul uh, describes this as putting on or clothing ourselves with five godly qualities, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And just before this exhortation to demonstrate these qualities in our lives, Paul tells us in verse 5, as we talked about a minute ago, to put to death five earthly sinful passions. I'm just going to list them one more time because there's a bit of a correlation between what we put off and what we put on. Those are sexual immorality, Impurity, which is probably referring mostly to evil thoughts and intentions. Passion, evil desire. This may be the physical and mental sides of of sexual lust. He says, put off passion and evil desire. Put off covetousness, which is greed. It's greed, wanting things others have or wanting things you don't have. Paul indicates that when we participate in sexual sins or in greed... We're following our own sinful desires rather than God's holy desires. And we're actually worshiping ourselves, worshiping our own, our own desires and lusts, which is idolatry. It says in that, back in, in that verse 5, that covetousness or greed is, amounts to idolatry, putting something else in the place that only God deserves. So in verse 9... There's another list. Paul says to put away or take off anger. It's a bitter, bitterness in your heart. Wrath, like outbursts of sinful anger. Malice, mean-spirited, hateful attitude. Slander, that's speaking false, falsely about other people, intending to tear them down. An obscene talk, just having a foul mouth. And kind of as a bonus add-on, Paul reminds us not to lie to each other since we have put off our old self and its practices and are being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator, he says in verse 10. Being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. So now let's look more closely at the five qualities we're told to put on. First is compassionate hearts. Paul says put on compassionate hearts. This could be translated as put on heartfelt compassion 
Or another way it could be translated is have a deep gut-level feeling of compassion for others. Jesus perfectly exhibited this type of sympathy for others and empathy for others. Just a few examples. In Matthew 9, 36, where he had compassion for the crowds of people who were just harassed and helpless, he said, like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion for them, the Bible says. Or in Matthew 14, 14, where Jesus was moved with compassion for a great multitude of people, and then he healed the sick. Or in Mark 1, 41, where moved with pity, he healed the leper that came and kneeled before him. Or in Luke 7, 13, where Jesus had compassion on a widow whose only son had died. And he told her, do not weep. And then he brought her son back to life. He resurrected her son out of his great compassion for her. And I feel like I need to make a, a little side note. <clears throat> There's an interesting truth about the people that Jesus healed or resurrected, brought back from, from death. An interesting truth about those, those people. Every single one of them eventually died physically of some physical cause resulting from the fall, didn't they? Otherwise, they'd still be alive telling their story today. Every single one of the people that Jesus physically healed physically died. And there's a reason I'm saying this. So Jesus didn't heal people while on earth so they would stay healed from that healing into eternity, for all eternity. I'll add to my side note. You will hear some teach that physical healing is part of the atoning work of Christ and is guaranteed in the atonement of Christ. And I'm here to tell you, Scripture doesn't support that. So just as a side note, Jesus healed out of this great compassion and also perhaps to establish that he was the Messiah. But those people he healed didn't stay physically healed for eternity, right? However, what's the true healing that Jesus came to bring that is eternal? It's forgiveness of sins. That's the eternal healing that he offers to those who repent and trust in him. That's eternal healing. Because though we die physically, we will live eternally with him if we have trusted in Christ. I believe that Jesus healed many people simply because he had the most compassionate heart imaginable. And that's the kind of compassion we're told to imitate, to pattern ourselves after. The kind of compassion where he couldn't help but heal these people we read about in Scripture because of his great compassion. All right, well, next we're told to put on kindness, and that's closely related to compassion, but it refers to a person's overall gracious demeanor. And Jesus used the same word when he invited those who are heavy laden in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are, 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 are burdened or heavy laden. And, and invited us to submit to his yoke, which he said is easy or kind. That's the word used in Matthew. This kindness 
describes a person who is just, con- just as concerned about his neighbor's good as he is for his own good. Another great biblical example of this type of kindness is the Good Samaritan story in Luke 10. The Good Samaritan stopped to help a stranger with no personal benefit in view, no thought of personal gain. He stopped simply to do good to another person. This is what this word kindness is talking about, thinking of the good of someone else, not yourself. Well, the next quality is humility that Paul says we are to put on. This literally means to think or judge with lowliness of mind. To think or judge with lowliness of mind, uh, demonstrating unpretentious behavior, a humble attitude, modesty, not thinking too highly of ourselves, as it talks about in Romans 12.3. Don't think too highly of yourself. One commentator says that this term indicates not merely a moral quality, but the subjection of self under the authority of and in response to the love of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to conform the believer to the character of Christ. So there's an element of submission to it. We'd have humility where we are submitted to Christ, serving Him, and because we're submitted to Him, we submit ourselves to others. What a great explanation of humility. It was perfectly modeled by Jesus in the Incarnation. We look at Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, that say, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is, This is true humility. All right, well, the fourth quality Paul says to put on is meekness. And it's closely related to humility. There's some similarities. Indicates a gentleness which can only be produced by the Holy Spirit. You know, remember in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, that's the the, uh, description of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, goodness, I think I missed goodness. Um, those are the fruits of the Spirit, and, and uh, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. It can't be manufactured apart from Him. So the word used for meekness, can, it, it can actually describe something like a wild horse that has been tamed, or a person tamed by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification in their life. This kind of person will also display a humble and gentle attitude, expressing itself in patience when attacked by others. Doesn't always seek to defend it. The person like that doesn't seek to defend themselves. And this once again brings to mind the perfect character of Jesus, who we're told to imitate, right? Hebrews 12.3 says we are to consider him, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Well, finally, the fifth quality that Paul says to put on in this short passage is patience. Patience is the opposite of resentment or revenge. Patient person doesn't get angry at others, but tolerates foolishness, even others' lack of teachability, not allowing it to drive them to cynicism or despair or bitterness. This kind of patience does not quickly retaliate, 
when wrongfully accused by others. Spurgeon's, um, Charles Spurgeon's encouragement is to continue to put up with others, remembering the Lord's long-suffering with you. It's a pretty pointed little comment. Put up with others, remembering the Lord's long-suffering with you. Well, just after Paul tells us to put on these five qualities, I'll just list them one more time. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Paul tells us to bear with one another and forgive each other, which really are natural outgrowths of the five virtues that he just told us to put on. Bearing with one another calls for us to patiently put up with difficult circumstances and difficult people. That's bearing with one another. Calls us to put to patiently put up with difficult circumstances and difficult people. Paul knows that every church is populated by all kinds of people, and sometimes we find ourselves in fellowship with those who are very different from us, and sometimes even difficult for us to tolerate. It happens. But again, our model is Jesus, who showed compassion to all kinds of people, including many people we might find difficult to love, or we might even find offensive. Jesus showed compassion to all of them. 1 John 3.10 just bluntly says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. It's a pretty clear statement. We are to love one another and bear with one another. Paul tells us, as we lovingly bear with one another in Christ. So we are also to, and this is point three, initiate forgiveness. We are also to initiate forgiveness. Paul says, pursue bearing with one another if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So if one has a complaint against another, refers to situations where somebody's at fault because they sinned against someone else, either intentionally or could be unknowingly, or they owe someone a debt of some kind, there's an alternate translation of this phrase that is, if anyone is habitually holding on to a complaint or quarrel. So another way of of translating if one has a complaint, if anyone is habitually holding on to a complaint or a quarrel, it's having a grievance with someone, having a bone to pick with somebody else, something you're hanging on to and not willing to let go of against somebody else. Paul tells us to approach the person who has wronged us, and he says that then we must demand that they produce a confession and restitution. No, actually that's not what he says right here. No, um, does, this passage does not discuss those, those issues. Scripture does tell us in other places how to respond to our own sin in a godly way through confession and repentance, going to a brother or sister that we've sinned against to be reconciled, Matthew 5, 23 and 24. But in this particular passage, the focus is on what to do if the sin was committed against us. So we are commanded to forgive each other as the Lord forgave us. This last phrase probably means 
we must forgive in the same way that Jesus forgives us, as the Lord forgave us in the same way. But it also probably includes the thought that we're to forgive because the Lord forgave us. Kind of both of those ideas are implied in, in the text there. For, we are to forgive in the same way that Jesus forgave us, and we are to forgive because Jesus has forgiven us. Paul's teaching that we are to forgive to the degree that he forgave us, which is partial? Nope. He forgave us fully and unconditionally. Romans 5.8 says that Christ died for our sins while we were still sinners. This identifies God as the one who initiates forgiveness. He initiated, had nothing to do with any effort, any goodness in us. And then in 1 John 4.10, we're told again that we, don't reach, we didn't reach out to God in love. We didn't initiate that relationship. He demonstrated his gracious love by sending Jesus to pay for our sins. This is love, that verse says. This is love. Not that we reached out in love to God, but that he loved us and sent Christ to die for our sins. As far as the extent of our forgiveness from God, Micah 7.19 says that when God forgives, he casts our sins into the depths of the sea. That's a really great picture. When God forgives, he casts our sins into the depths of the sea. Does it seem like Paul is setting the bar pretty high for our forgiveness of others? I think, I think it does. Yeah, he's setting the bar pretty high. The Greek verb that's translated forgiving actually conveys the idea that for, in forgiving others, you are engaging in an act of grace, offered freely and usually not deserved. So again, this brings to mind exactly the way that Christ has forgiven us. When, when Jesus was teaching his disciples the, Lord, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, including forgiving the debts of others as God has forgiven our debts, he, Jesus used a different word in that passage for forgive than Paul uses here in Colossians. The word that Jesus chose means that when we forgive others, we are called to be like our Father and send away their debt unconditionally, completely, no strings attached. We just simply send away their debt, forgiving them exactly as we have been forgiven. If we think we can never forgive, I know sometimes I've heard people say, you don't understand. You don't understand the, the, what the person did to me. You don't understand how deep the hurt is. You, you don't understand. I, I can't forgive them. If we think we can never forgive an especially deep hurt that's been inflicted on us, we need to take some serious time to meditate on the depth of God's forgiveness shown to us in Christ. To purchase our pardon, he bore our sins in his body on the cross, it says in 1 Peter 2.24. Galatians 3.13 says, he became a curse for us to redeem us from the curse of the law. And then in familiar passage in 2 Corinthians 5.21, I love this verse. For our sake, he, meaning God, made him, Jesus, to be sin. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In light of God's forgiveness and all of our sins, 
how can we possibly withhold forgiveness from others? This passage really is telling us we can't. As God has forgiven us, we must forgive others. Spurgeon says this. He says, we are called to forgive others just as readily, just as freely, just as heartily, and just as completely as Jesus. We must forgive others just as readily, freely, heartily, and completely as Jesus. Paul sums up this passage now in verse 14 by saying, and above all these, all these virtues, all these qualities he just told us to put on, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So point four, the final point is that we must in all things put on love. Point four, in all things put on love. The word Paul chose for all, this is very interesting, the word Paul used for all means each, every, any, all, the whole, everyone, all things, everything. So pretty much means all. Everything, in everything put on love. The literal translation of and above all things put on love is actually and upon all these love. So Paul's kind of going back to his clothing imagery of verse 12 and suggesting that love is pictured as like an article of clothing to be put on top of the other qualities he just said to put on. This communicates that love is not just another virtue to be added to the list. It is the supreme virtue. This is established by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. We sometimes call the love chapter where Paul explains that if a person demonstrates amazing spiritual commitment or powers but doesn't exercise them in love, they are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Actually, it says in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 13, it says they are nothing without love. Nothing. So to attempt to practice the qualities of virtues listed in verses 12 and 13, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, without love would, would amount to legalism. Applying these virtues to our relationships must flow from love, which again is a fruit of the Spirit. Paul says, finally, in this passage we're looking at, that love binds everything together in perfect harmony. Binds everything together. And this word binds, can, it can actually refer to connecting parts of the human body like sinews and ligaments that bind together muscle and bone and parts of the body tightly. The implication is if we seek to implement these qualities Paul describes without love, we will do so either selfishly or hypocritically. One author said, the man without love is, in effect, the man whose very virtues are selfish unto himself. God's love for us and ours in response to the love of Christ is what motivates us to act for the good of others, not for our own good. So as God's holy and beloved chosen people, Paul exhorts us to imitate Christ's holy and loving character with compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience to bear with, even when it's difficult, bear with and forgive each other just as God has forgiven us and to do all of this, all of it in love. I'm going to wrap up here pretty quickly, but I want to just delve a little bit into the idea of forgiveness that we see in this passage because I think it's so important. How we apply it is really important. 
I want to go back uh, to this forgiving just as God has forgiven us. Before my wife, Danelle, and I were married, we received marriage counsel from two different people. One was the director of the Christian camp where we worked, very godly man, and uh, he gave us very practical, great advice for marriage, very practical. The other was a godly older woman who was discipling my wife, Danelle. This humble lady, Muriel, asked if she could meet with both of us before we were married, to, just to pass along some biblical wisdom related to marriage that she had accumulated over the years, she'd learned. A number of things that Muriel shared have stuck with us and helped us tremendously over the years. And I believe they would help in any relationship, marriage or otherwise, any relationship. Well, at the top of her list was the simple encouragement to apply Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 to our marriage every day. So Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. We were encouraged by Muriel to resolve any conflicts between us daily because not doing so results in resentment and bitterness and even hatred building up in our hearts towards each other. Not forgiving one another or clearing the slate of our sins daily gives the devil an opportunity, plays into his already tireless efforts, right, to divide us to drive us to despair and ultimately to seek to destroy us by drawing us away from God. Preacher Adrian Rogers said, when you get angry and you sin and you refuse to deal with that sin, it becomes bitterness. And that bitterness in your life becomes the devil's campground, the devil's beachhead. It is that foul nest in which Satan takes up lodging to war on the rest of your life and to trouble you. Pretty picturesque quote. I can't tell you how many times Danelle and I have spoken with, with friends, with other couples who are experiencing, and this is over many years, experiencing great conflict in their, their relationship or in their marriage, but they have no idea how or when it started. I can't tell you. If you ask what led to this animosity, this underlying resentment, they usually say they, they just have no idea. I believe this happens, and it happens a lot, when we don't keep short accounts, when we don't obey what 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, which is, love keeps no record of wrongs. In other words, love forgives. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs that your friend or your spouse have committed against you. So just for a second, going back to the Dossler brothers in Germany, former employees and family members who were interviewed after the death of the brothers said, no one understood the cause of their falling out. The feud spread to the workforce of both companies. Puma employees wouldn't speak to Adidas employees, nor would they enter the same restaurant where they might come into contact with each other. Companies over the decades, have even been caught participating in corporate espionage, sabotage over the years. How incredibly sad over something 
We don't even, don't even know what the cause of this was anymore. How incredibly sad that the same thing can happen in our relationships. We can go so far from where this grudge or lack of forgiveness, root of bitterness started, we don't even remember where it started or what it was even about. But we didn't deal with it. We didn't initiate forgiveness. So it builds up and gives the devil an opportunity in our lives. If we are to forgive each other as God has forgiven us in Christ, just real quick, and I'm going to wrap this up fast, what are the characteristics of God's forgiveness? I'm just going to rattle these off, and sorry if it's too fast, but can give them to you later if you want. Christ, first, Christ paid for our sins while we were God's enemies. This is, how, this is characteristics of God's forgiveness. Christ paid for our sins while we were God's enemies, Romans 5.10. Second, God forgives us out of his mercy and grace, not because we deserve it in any way, Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. Third, when God forgives, he does not deal with us or repay us according to our sins, Psalm 103, 10. Number four, when God forgives, he casts our sins into the depths of the sea. And I mentioned this verse, Micah 7, 19 earlier. Fifth, when God forgives, he blots out our sins and chooses not to remember them. Note that, Isaiah 43, 25, Jeremiah 31, 34. Not that he can't remember them. God can remember anything. When he forgives us, he chooses, he blots out our sins and he chooses not to remember them. So this is the kind of forgiveness God has shown us. There's a Christian organization called Peacemakers. They created a very simple checklist to help with the process of forgiving others, and they call it the Four Promises of Forgiveness. These are the four promises of forgiveness they encourage in our relationships. I will, not, I will choose not to think about this incident, it's like choosing not to remember, right? I will not bring this incident up and use it or hold it against you. God no longer holds our sins against us. Three, I will not talk to others about this incident or gossip. Four, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or to hinder our relationship. We're reconciled to God when we, by faith, receive the forgiveness He offers us in Christ. So this is, these are beautiful encouragements to truly forgive as Christ has forgiven us. This is really where the rubber meets the road. Really is. Practicing this requires forgiving the other person in such a way that you now see them as clean, free from that sin, grievance that they committed against you. You see them differently in a sense like how God sees us when we've been forgiven and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He sees us as clean. We are to forgive in such a way and not give the devil an opportunity. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for your word. It is wonderful. It's life-giving, life-changing. It's powerful. Lord, we thank you for what you inspired the Apostle Paul to write about putting off our sinful, the, the qualities of our sinful nature because now we're new creatures in Christ, we've been crucified with him, he lives in us, your spirit lives in us, and now we are called to put on these wonderful godly qualities, uh, compassionate hearts, and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, 
and to bear with one another, forgiving each other as we have been forgiven in Christ. Father, we thank you. We praise you for your forgiveness. We ask you to help us keep it in view at all times that whenever someone does something wrong against us, we will be quick to forgive them as you have forgiven us. And Lord, in our relationships and our marriages, would you help us to begin to keep short accounts, to not let the sun go down on our anger, that we would not give the devil an opportunity to take for bitterness to take root in our hearts and lead to just really a cancer that affects our relationships so dramatically and sometimes even destroys them. God, would you help us to apply what your word tells us today in the power of your spirit because we can't do it in our strength. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'd stand, I'd just like to give a benediction as we close. As God's holy and beloved chosen ones, let us put off all sinful ways and imitate Jesus, bearing with and forgiving each other as he has forgiven us. Amen. Amen.